Yay nay oh man. Welcome to another episode of Yay, Nay or Meh, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And this is lining up to be another very, very long show. Because I have four films to review, which were released at the cinemas this week. Two of which I actually made a cinema trip to this week, and two of which I saw earlier in the year through Extra Legal Means. Well, actually, one was through Extra Legal Means and one was through an online film festival. But either way, I've got two foreign language films already in the bag to review and two pretty big releases for this week. And I also found time to watch a cheesy Christmas movie that has been released onto Sky Cinema. So in this episode, I will be reviewing the kid-friendly film Clifford the Big Red Dog, the latest version of the classic musical West Side Story, the Iranian award-winning film There Is No Evil, and the Norwegian film that was on the shortlist for the foreign language Oscar last year, or earlier this year, Hope. And also on Sky Cinema, released this week, or released recently, we have A Christmas Number One. So, plenty to get through, and let's just get straight on with today's reviews. Big Screen Clifford the Big Red Dog is a kiddie-friendly film based on the enormously successful series of books by Norman Bidwell which I must admit I don't have a strong personal connection to. I mean, I'm certainly aware of the Cliff of the Big Red Dog books, but I honestly can't remember ever sitting down and reading them as a child or having them read to me. But I am certainly aware of Cliff of the Big Red Dog, and it's yet another attempt to get a kid-friendly franchise started following the success of things like Paddington. In this film, we have a lonely 12-year-old played by Darby Camp, who has just moved in with her mother to an apartment in New York, and she is a scholarship girl at a very prestigious and very expensive private school in New York, and she's miserable. She doesn't fit in, she's being bullied, and she doesn't really have any friends. And this is made even worse when her mother, Sienna Guillory, has to go away for a couple of days to Chicago because she is a paralegal and that is where her latest court case has taken her. So at the end of her tether, Sienna Guillory makes the one call that she doesn't want to make, the only person available to babysit Darby Camp while she is away for these few days is Sienna Guillory's very irresponsible brother, Jack Whitehall. So Jack Whitehall moves into this apartment for a few days and looks after his 
12-year-old niece. And in the morning when walking to school, Darby Camp notices in the park across the street an animal rescue tent in the park and insists that she and her uncle Jack Whitehall go to this. And inside they find not only an exotic collection of animals, but also a mysterious old salesman played by John Cleese. And at this animal rescue tent they see a bright red puppy, which Darby Camp instantly falls in love with, but reluctantly leaves behind only to find when she gets home at the end of the day that this mysterious red puppy has ended up in her bag. And feeling lonely and upset after another hard day at school, she makes a wish that she could be big and be protected from all the hard feelings. And when she wakes up in the morning, this small red puppy has turned into a gigantic red dog about 10 feet tall, in this tiny apartment in New York, which does not allow pets, and hilarity ensues, particularly when a biotech billionaire played by Tony Hale sees social media footage of this gigantic red dog and thinks, this is the solution to my problems. I mean, I've been trying for years with my biotech company to make giant food in order to feed the world and it's failed but here's this giant dog and if we can get this dog and find out what makes it work maybe we can make some money off this so tony hale is after this gigantic dog the building super david alan greer doesn't want the dog around and most of derby camp's classmates don't want the dog around either with the exception of the geeky Asian kid Isaac Wang, who clearly has a crush on Darby Camp. So can this motley group of people protect this gigantic dog and give it the love that it demands? I mean, this is exactly what it sets out to be. This is a kid-friendly film with important but pretty basic and pretty standard messaging you know, embrace your differences understand people have an inclusive attitude i mean this tiny little neighborhood in new york is so happy and so multi-ethnic that everybody just gets along i mean there are bodega owners around the corner who are hispanic there's a married lawyer couple across the street who are black one of the bodega owners has a missing hand, which I don't think is really inclusivity because it's mostly played off as a gag, but it's still there. I mean, it's inclusive, it's nice. It's probably the kind of neighbourhood that we wish still existed, but probably doesn't in modern day New York. But it has that message. You know, we should embrace all people, embrace all differences. And that's ultimately what this comes down to. There's also messaging about privilege. One of the early things, one of the things that Darby Camp gets bullied about is that she actually does the assignment of collecting recycling. You know, a recycling drive, a fundraising drive at this school. I mean, she actually does all the work and turns up to school with a bag full of cans. 
but all the other kids didn't do it. They just wrote a check for the fundraising. And because she's the scholarship kid, she doesn't know this. So privilege and doing the bare minimum because you are privileged is also something that comes up a lot in this. So this is all important messaging, but it's messaging we've seen before, and it's not done in a particularly strong way. And always done in a pretty kid-friendly way. I mean, as you might anticipate, there are some madcap chases in this. And at one point, Jack Whitehall is being pursued by Tony Howell's security guards, and they go through this bodega. And they start having a fight with the security guards and the bodega owners in Jack Whitehall. And you're know, using the environments around them to fight with each other in this bodega. And it struck me that I've seen that kind of scene done before, particularly. I mean, the master of it was Jackie Chan. What he did so well in his heyday back in the 70s and 80s in Hong Kong was go into an environment and use all the things around him in a really inventive and really thrilling way. When Jackie Chan fights in a shop in a bodega, it feels cool, it feels exciting, but it also feels threatening. When Jack Whitehall and these goons do it in Clifford the Big Red Dog, it just seems messy. It's a kid-friendly idea of what a fight in a bodega would be. It's ultimately a food fight, not an actual fight between threatening people and that's the tone we're going for here and there's nothing particularly wrong with that it's just aimed squarely at a very kid-friendly market and i don't think it quite had the budget to fully pull this idea off because clifford throughout the film is cgi and the cgi creations in this film are Actually, very, very convincing, but they are not perfect. We have reached the stage nowadays where CGI characters in live action films can be very, very convincing, but unless you have the budget of something like The Lion King, you know, John Favreau's Lion King, then it, you can't quite pull it off convincingly, particularly when in the latter portions of the film, Darby Camp starts riding Clifford the Big Red Dog. When you add in a human character in a completely CGI environment, it no longer works at all. It looks really, really odd, really, really false. So CGI creations are very, very convincing nowadays, but they are not perfect unless you've really got the budget and the patience to do it properly, like in Favreau's Lion King. I also think it's noticeable that there's one moment in this film where you realise this is a post-Covid film. There's one scene where Jack Whitehall, who's unemployed and basically homeless, he's living in a truck, he goes into a job interview, which he's 45 minutes late for, and there's some hand sanitizer at the door. And... He uses the hand sanitizer as he was supposed to, and then you know has a brainwave and thinks, "Oh, I'm homeless. I don't have access to a shower. Let's use some of this hand sanitizer." And he starts basically washing himself in the lobby of this illustration company, which is kind of a, a, a goofy idea, kind of a gross-out, kid-friendly idea. 
but also shows not only that this is a post-COVID film and it's the only time this is a post-COVID film, but it also shows just how down on his luck Jack Whitehall is and why he leaps at the chance to look after his niece, despite the fact that several times in the past he, you know, left his niece on a subway train, that kind of thing. And this brings me on to the one really, really stupid decision that I think Clifford the Big Red Dog made. Darby Camp is living with her mother, Sienna Guillory. Sienna Guillory is an English actress and she is playing her role with an English accent. Jack Whitehall, Sienna Guillory's brother, is also an English actor and he is not playing his role with an English accent. Jack Whitehall is playing his role with an American accent, and to my ears, not a particularly good American accent. That just makes no sense to me at all. When Sienna Guillory is English, and when Jack Whitehall is English, why not have them both play it with an English accent, since they're supposed to be siblings? Having Jack Whitehall put on a not particularly convincing American accent for the entirety of the film just makes no sense at all, and it consistently took me out of the film. But I suppose having too many main adult characters with English accents might have been an issue, given that they've got John Cleese as well. I mean, actually, the only leading actor in this entire film who is actually American is Tony Hale. So, I don't know, maybe that had something to do with it, but it, it was such a bizarre decision to have Jack Whitehall play this with an American accent. So, yeah, I mean, this is fine. It's exactly what it aims to be, albeit not done in a particularly original or inventive way. This is no Paddington. I mean, Paddington was charming and delightful. And this is clearly aiming for the same market. And it's just fine. It's fine. It does what it sets out to do in a reasonably entertaining, non-threatening way. And that's about as much as you can ask. And that's about as much as it gives you. So, yeah, on the terms of being an entertaining enough film for small kids... I mean, I watched this with a handful of families. I mean, I think we're already in the Christmas holidays. So I think there were about, I don't know, six or seven kids in the screening I was in that were under eight, probably. And all of them stayed still and quiet throughout the course of the film. And I think that's always a good sign because that doesn't always happen in kid-friendly films. So with that limited sample size, I think this will be enthralling enough for small kids. And I didn't have a problem with it. I mean, it, it's not great, but it's not awful either. It does exactly what it sets out to do, and that is the epitome of what a meh is. And that is what I'm giving Clifford the Big Red Dog. The second cinema trip I made this week, in fact, I essentially went straight out of Clifford the Bed Red Dog and into the screening at the Odeon Cinema of West Side Story, the new version of the classic musical, this one directed by Steven Spielberg. Telling the story 
or retelling the story of Romeo and Juliet, but setting it in the gang-infested slums of 1950s west side of Manhattan, where the Caucasian Jets and the Hispanic Sharks are fighting each other, and Tony of the Jets and Maria of the Sharks fall in love, and this sets off a chain of events which end in tragedy and death. This was originally put on on stage in the 1960s with music by Leonard Bernstein, lyrics by Stephen Sondheim, his big break in Broadway, book by Arthur Lawrence, and choreography and direction by Jerome Robbins. This was an enormous success and was turned into a feature film in 1961, where it won 10 Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director, shared by Jerome Robbins and Robert Wise, and perhaps most famously nowadays, Best Supporting Actress for Rita Moreno, who also appears in this 2021 version of the film, which is interesting, and I'll be getting on to that later. But West Side Story was enormously successful in 1961, despite the fact that the musical itself and this film version have been the source of a little bit of controversy in the intervening decades from the Latinx community. After all, this is a musical and a film which portrays the Puerto Rican community in New York but it is from a creative team who was entirely made up of white Jewish queer men. Although there's some debate whether Leonard Bernstein was a gay man who married to keep in the closet or bisexual, but Jerome Robbins, Arthur Lawrence and Stephen Sondheim were all gay men and didn't always have the most culturally sensitive approach to casting. You can make an argument that the Tony in the 1961 version, Richard Bamer, had darker skin than his Maria, played by Natalie Wood. And in the major roles, it was basically only Rita Moreno who was culturally appropriate in the 1961 version which is perhaps why, to this day, she remains a mainstay presenting at the Oscars, and she's always a a bolt of energy and enthusiasm when she presents at the Oscars. I love Rita Moreno, but maybe not in this particular case. Again, I'll be getting back on that in a minute. But yeah, this time, it is entirely culturally appropriate casting, with all the Latinx characters being played by Latinx performers, including Maria, played by complete newcomer Rachel Zegler, and her friend Anita, being played by Ariana DeBose, the first Afro-Latina performer to appear in a major production of West Side Story. I'm actually not exactly sure of Ariana DeBose's ethnic background, because the last time I saw her, she was playing Kerry Washington's daughter in the film version of the musical The Prom last year. But anyway, Ariana DeBose is playing Rita Moreno's character from the original film. 
Tony is being played by Ansel Elgort, and Rita Moreno is also in this film playing a new character, a character which is gender-swapped and racially-swapped from the original musical. But when you are Rita Moreno and you are acting as executive producer on this film, you get to do that kind of thing. And you also get to take the song somewhere for yourself. The one that starts There's a Place for Us. And that character singing that song at that time in the movie doesn't actually make a great deal of sense. But it's Rita Moreno, so we'll let her get away with it. But yeah, this is culturally appropriate with Tony being played by Ansel Elgort, who I didn't know could sing, and he's pretty good, it has to be said. And everything in this film is pretty good. I think this new version of West Side Story is an interesting and sometimes curious blending of a very modern approach to this material and a very old-fashioned approach to this material. There's a minor character in West Side Story called Anybodies who traditionally has been played by a tomboy girl. In this new version, that character is definitively a trans character and is being portrayed by a non-binary performer, Iris Maynass. There's a specific line of dialogue where that character anybody says, I ain't no goddamn girl to the extent that this is yet another film which is not being played in the Middle East, in countries like Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and the UAE. This film has been banned, very much like the Marvel film Eternals recently. So, yeah, LGBTQ plus representation isn't as strong as it could be around the world, but it's a definitive step forward that that character is definitively trans. And apparently the estate of Arthur Lawrence, who wrote the original book for the musical, entirely approved of this change and said Arthur Lawrence would have done that if he could have done in the 1960s. In this new film, there's also a lot of incidental Spanish. And this is Spanish which does not have subtitles. The Latinx characters occasionally speak Spanish to each other. And there's scenes which are half in Spanish, half in English, because the repeated refrain is, do it in English, we need to practice, we need to fit in, which is an understandable thing to do. But there are a, there is a lot of Spanish dialogue in this film. It has to be said, a lot more incidental Spanish dialogue than there was in In the Heights. Uh, one of the few things which I think West Side Story does better than In the Heights. There's also some gender stuff i mean in this film it is definitely maria who kisses tony first and not the other way round and it's also interesting that the film opens basically on a wasteland in rubble strewn building sites and one of the first things we see on screen i think is a very pointed statement we see a sign saying by order of the New York Slum Clearance Committee, this building site will eventually become the Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts. So this ethnically diverse slum is being cleared for an opera house and a ballet center. 
And I think that is a deliberate point and feels very, very modern, feels very 2021. So there's all these things which bring this story up to date and bring it into line with modern ideologies and modern ideas. But equally, there's very, very old-fashioned approaches to musicals and cinema. As I've been recently saying, it has actually been a rather good year for movie musicals. In the Heights was awesome. Everybody's talking about Jamie was awesome. I still haven't got around to Tick, Tick, Boom, but from everything I hear, that's very good as well. And modern day film versions of musicals have a particular approach, a particular tone to them. And that is not something that West Side Story has. I mean, one of the things that made the original stage version of West Side Story so innovative was that it consistently used dance as a storytelling method as well as singing and acting. I mean, that is what Jerome Robbins brought to the stage version and to the film version where he co-directed with the film's producer Robert Wise. And we just don't do that anymore. And yet, this film version directed by Steven Spielberg, which was a really odd choice, but this film version does repeatedly just stop stone dead the story so we can have some dance sequences. Now, don't get me wrong, these dance sequences are awesome, with modern-day choreographer Justin Peck taking cues from the original choreography by Jerome Robbins but not imitating it outright. The sequences are excellent, but it just doesn't feel like a modern-day film anymore or a modern-day adaptation of a musical anymore. And I think the film also looks beautiful with this desolate landscape in which it's taking place in, with all of these buildings being demolished. I mean, the irony that the Jets and the Sharks are fighting over this territory which is rapidly going. It is not going to be there anymore because they're going to build an opera house on this land. So there's irony to that. But the cinematography is beautiful. And again, the, you know, the lush, polished cinematography of Steven Spielberg's longtime cinematographer, Janusz Kaminski, it looks beautiful, but again, it doesn't really feel like the way we do musicals anymore. It's got this very old-fashioned approach with some very, very modern ideas and attitudes and approaches. But having said that, there are certain things. I mean, I did go back and watch the 1961, or Power Watch, the 1961 version of West Side Story particularly because I did want to check out how the character of anybody's was treated, the character which in the modern version is played as trans. And it has to be said that in 1961, that character is queer-coded as hell. Basically, they pushed it as far as they possibly could in 1961 to make that a queer character. Played in the 1961 film by Susan Oakes, who was only 17 at the time. But they pushed it as far as they possibly could, to the extent that there is a line of dialogue towards the end of the 1961 version where somebody says to this character, anybody's, you done good, buddy boy. A line which is repeated in the 2021 version. 
And there's one scene in the 2021 version which I thought, oh, okay, that's another way that this has been updated and we couldn't have got away with that in 1961. There's a scene towards the end of the film which basically amounts to an attempted gang rape. And it's pretty heavy going in 2021. But looking back at the 1961 version, that scene plays out pretty much exactly the same. And for 1961, that's pretty heavy stuff and pretty hard going. So yeah, they were pushing the envelope in multiple ways back in 1961. But it feels like a film which is a little bit at war with itself. It wants to have this open, ethnically appropriate queer-friendly attitude in 2021, but it still has these big, elaborately choreographed dance numbers in it, which I don't think always fits. But it is trying to do something which feels appropriate to the modern day. In a world which is increasingly divided, in a world where conflict seems to be the order of the day, Having a film which is so much about conflict and so much about futile conflict, you know, having a situation in the opening sequences of this film where this Caucasian gang, you know, dances down the street, being as hard as he can be when you're clicking your fingers and dancing balletically. But they're walking down the streets of New York and within a block, suddenly all the signs are in Spanish. And having this tribalist attitude. I mean, it's not as blatant as I might have expected it to be, but the colour of people's clothes does play an important part in this film. It's not universal, but the jets tend to wear blue and the sharks tend to wear red. It's not as blatant as, you know, Star Trek or something, but when they're all en masse together, it does stand out and it is very well done. And the fact that there is so much dialogue of this film which is in Spanish and is unsubtitled, I think is an impressive thing to do. So, yeah, it's got these modern attitudes and at the same time it's got some somewhat old-fashioned ideas from 60-odd years ago. So, I think at certain points this is a film in conflict with itself. And in certain places, I do think it is more ethnically diverse and more appropriate than something like In the Heights. But ultimately, this is still a film which is being made by a largely white behind-the-scenes crew, with Steven Spielberg directing and the screenplay being by his long-term friend and collaborator, Tony Kushner. So it's still quite Jewish and quite gay, but it's still white. And I think the musical, which was originated by Lin-Manuel Miranda and directed by John Chu in The Heights, is a more appropriate signpost for where we are in the 21st century than West Side Story. But I only say this in a negative light in comparison to In The Heights, which in a lot of ways is quite a similar film. And also in comparison to the other musicals we've had this year, like Everybody's Talking About Jamie. On its own terms, I think West Side Story has updated this tale to 
the modern day in a very appropriate and very approachable way. I think it's very good. The cast around is excellent, particularly Ariana DeBose. I love seeing Rita Moreno in everything, even though she stole some of the best stuff for herself and shouldn't really have been in the film in the first place. But it's Rita Moreno. Are you going to say no to Rita Moreno? But anyway, West Side Story, the new version, is very good. And for me, it is a very high meh. Although I do recommend and prefer In the Heights. So now we come to the pre-recorded section of this cinematic entry. The first film I want to talk about, which I saw at the beginning of the year, is the Iranian film There Is No Evil, which won the 2020 Golden Bear at the Berlin Film Festival, which is why I ended up buying a ticket to it at an online festival once I'd run out of things I needed to see. And this is the review I recorded of There Is No Evil after watching it earlier in the year. Archive start. So it is the end of March 2021, and I have just watched another virtual screening at the online Borderlines Film Festival, based in Hereford and its environs. As I usually do when I watch one of these online film festivals, I buy myself a package of tickets and then tick off stuff that I think will be interesting. And after I'd ticked off the stuff I needed to see in order to include it in my Oscar preview shows, I had a couple of tickets left. There was nothing that really, really stood out to me, so I eventually decided on this Iranian film, There Is No Evil because I knew it had won the Golden Bear at the 2020 Berlin Film Festival. I thought, okay, it's a prestige picture, and even though it's about the death penalty and will probably be really fucking depressing, I may as well get it off the list, because it's a prestige-important picture. And I'm actually watching this a couple of weeks after the 2021 Golden Bear at the Berlin Film Festival, which this year was virtual, has been handed out to the Romanian director Radu Jude, who I have to admit is not a director I'm particularly fond of. So at some point I'm going to have to put myself through another Radu Jude film, I think. But regardless, this is the 2020 Golden Bear, There Is No Evil, directed by Mohamed Rasulov, who is one of those Iranian directors who has consistently fallen afoul of the Iranian authorities and the Iranian censors, to the extent that he currently has a jail sentence hanging over his head. He was arrested and put on trial, and after an initial sentence of six years, it was then reduced to one year, but thanks to the COVID pandemic, that is currently pending. And as he was arrested, he was arrested with Jafar Panahi, who he was collaborating with on this film, which he got arrested for. And similarly to Jafar Panahi, Mohamed Rasulov has said, fuck you, Iranian authorities, I'm going to make films and I'm going to smuggle it out of the country, which is what he did. And it played at the Berlin Film Festival and was successful at the Berlin Film Festival, even though... He could not attend the ceremony himself because his passport was taken away by Iran. 
So yes, a dissident Iranian filmmaker doing well at the Berlin Film Festival. Haven't we seen that before with Jafar Panahi's Taxi Tehran in 2015? But anyway, this is, as I said, about the death penalty in Iran, or more specifically, about conscripts into the Iranian military being forced to do executions for the state. Or at least that is what the majority of the film is about. It's four individual vignettes, and the last three are definitely about that thing of national service young men in the Iranian military having to execute people for the state. The first one I don't think is about that, but I don't know enough about the Iranian legal system. But yes, this is about moral decisions and questions arising, surrounding, carrying out executions. And it's a odd film in a lot of ways, because when I heard about this film, I knew it was award-winning, I knew it had done well at Berlin, and I knew it was about the death penalty. So I assumed it would be about the people who are in prison and are about to be executed, because more often than not, that's what films about the death penalty are. But this, as I said, it is much more oblique. It's coming at this subject from very, very strange angles. And, yeah, it's actually one of those films that the least you know going into it, the better, I think. Having said that, I don't think I strongly recommend this film. But I'll be getting onto that in a minute. But I'm going to talk about these four vignettes in the broadest most general terms possible, and that will give you an impression as to what this film is. So in this first vignette, which is the only one which doesn't seem to be connected to military service and having to carry out executions, I mean, young Iranian men have to serve 21 months in the Iranian military, and the unlucky ones get put into the execution detail. And that's what the last three vignettes are about. But the first one doesn't seem to be about that. As a middle-aged man goes about his daily business, he picks up his wife, he goes to the bank, he bickers with his wife, he goes to the supermarkets, he looks after his infirm mother, he takes his young daughter to a pizza restaurant, he goes home. It's very, very long, very mundane, very slow. And I was thinking, what is going on here? What's the point? I mean, the opening shot of this vignette, and therefore the opening shot of the film, because I knew that this film was about the death penalty, I saw that scene in very dark, very disturbing terms. As it turns out, it's rather mundane. And that's kind of the point. It's a very long, very detailed, frankly quite boring day in the life of an ordinary middle-aged Iranian man. And then the final scene happens and you realise what the whole point of this thing is. I think this first vignette would make an excellent standalone 
33-minute short film. As the start of a series of vignettes about the death penalty, I think it does work as well, but I do think it's an outstanding short film in and of itself. The second vignette is about one of these unfortunate conscripts into the Iranian military, and this is the first night, the first time he has been asked to carry out an execution, and he does not want to do it. He goes to extreme lengths in order to not do this, and along the way has discussions, even arguments, with the other young men in his unit. I mean, we've all done it. Yes, it's not the nicest thing to do, but why don't you just do it? You know, get it over with. But his morals, his ethics will not allow him to do this, and he attempts things at extreme lengths to avoid actually killing somebody. And yeah, I, I'm not sure what I feel about this second vignette. I don't think the point and the purpose of this vignette is entirely clear. There's a chance it links into the last vignette, and if it does, I don't think the link is done well enough. But the directions it goes in, I don't really see the purpose of it, quite frankly. It, it didn't really land with me, the second vignette. So, yeah, I, I think of the four, that's the weakest and the one I have the least time for. Uh, thankfully, it's also the shortest. <laughs> but, yeah, it, 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 it didn't quite work for me. Uh, and then we go on to the third vignette which is another one of these young men who have been conscripted into the Iranian military. He's travelling to the leafy rural regions of Iran back home, where he is intending to celebrate his girlfriend's birthday, and at this birthday party he is intending to propose to her. But when he gets there, the party is a rather more sombre affair than he is expecting, for reasons which become clear and reasons which make him question everything he's ever done and make him question his relationship with his girlfriend or putative fiancé. And, yeah, this was, was kind of interesting. It's a segment which is very slow, it's a very languorous, very poetic approach to this material, with the morals and ethics of the situation being brought to the fore. It actually reminds me a lot of the work of the Turkish director Nuri Bilge Ceylan, who again is not a director I'm particularly fond of, but that very slow, very methodical, but very beautiful approach to the way that Jaylan makes films is kind of what I felt about this third vignette. And the questions that arise between this couple and what revelations are made during the course of this vignette, it's actually rather interesting. And I honestly think Mohamed Rasulov could have made an entire feature film of this short. I think 
it would have come across a little bit like Jay Lowne's work, you know, things like The Wild Pear Tree. It did have that feel to it. And I actually think of all of the four, I think that's the one that works the best. I think the morals, the ethics, the traumas which are explored in that vignette are excellent to see and excellent to explore, albeit in this very languorous, very poetic way. So yeah, I, I honestly think I would have preferred that third vignette to be extended out into a full-length feature instead of these four individual stories we get. And then the last vignette is the longest one and this is the one that's on most of the publicity the three actors in this final vignette are the ones who attended the berlin film festival last year and maybe that has something to do with the fact that the young woman in this final vignette is baran rasulov Mohammed Rasulov's 19-year-old daughter, and she is the one who picked up her father's golden bear. So maybe that's got something to do with this. I mean, she's the face on the poster. But anyway, it's the longest one, and for me, it's the one that has the least point. A young woman is travelling from Germany to Iran, and seems much more comfortable speaking German than she does speaking Farsi. And actually, honestly, I think the subtitles could have made that a bit clearer because it was quite late in the day that I realised she was speaking German and not Persian. So some indication in the subtitles would have been helpful. But anyway, this young woman has come from Germany to Iran to spend a long weekend or you know, a week with old, old friends of her father. Her father is a doctor back in Germany and insists that his daughter goes and spends time with these family friends in the remote wilderness desert regions, almost, of Iran, which perhaps not inconsequentially you can film in without raising the eyebrows of the Iranian authorities. But anyway, in this very remote region of Iran, it becomes clear that these old friends of this young woman's father have an ulterior motive for bringing her to Iran and bringing her to this remote location. But what is it and what changes will this make to the lives of the people involved? So, um, yeah, again, this is very, very slow, very methodical, very poetic. Lots of lingering shots of you know, people's facial expressions. It becomes clear very early on there is something extra going on here. Why has this couple brought this young woman to a remote region of Iran? What secrets are there to be revealed? And it becomes clear that there is something going on. And then when it's finally revealed, it's is a little bit underwhelming, to be honest. I mean, it's possible that this is a continuation of the second vignette, and for understandable reasons, everybody's changed their names. But equally, it could be something which happens enough that it's happened to separate groups of people. And I'm not sure which it is, and I'm not sure which I'm supposed to believe it is. 
But either way, vignettes two and four could easily make a connection, and you could almost make a feature film out of that as well. Although, quite honestly, I don't think it would be as good as the third one. But, yeah, the traumas of the past and the guilt of the past is something which is definitely present in this fourth vignette and is present throughout the course of the film. Uh, and the, the conclusions, the final ideas of this film, you know, forcing conscripts to kill people, the end of that journey, what you reflect back on towards the end of your life, that is what the final vignette is about. That is what the film leaves us with. And yeah, I guess that's profound in some ways, but equally, it's just a fairly standard stuff and a little bit underwhelming. So yeah, overall, There Is No Evil just didn't hit me particularly hard. It didn't connect with me. I can kind of see what Mohamed Rasulov is trying to do. And there are certain bits of this which do work. I mean, like I said, I think the first vignette works superbly well as a 33-minute short film. The third vignette, if you'd expanded that out and stretched out the revelations in that over the course of a film, which I think you easily could do, and maybe I'm being hypersensitive to it, but I think there might even be a queer subplot in that third vignette involving this young woman's brother, but you could easily have expanded that into a full-length feature, and either one of those I think would have been more satisfying than the complete film we get. It does kind of remind me of the film Clemency, the Alfie Woodard film which I've recently given my raw footage awards to Best Actress and Best Supporting Actor last year. Yeah, Alfie Woodard is a, a prison governor who is yet again asked to execute somebody. I mean, the toll it takes on the people asked to carry out the executions, I felt a lot of clemency. I felt a lot of the Israeli film Foxtrot from a few years back a harrowing film about Israeli conscripted soldiers and the generational trauma of decades of young people going into the army and the things they do, the things they see, and how that affects the rest of their lives. So yeah, I felt a lot of Foxtrot. And as I said, I also felt a lot of Nuri Bilge Jalan, who is not a director I'm particularly fond of. And when I say it, I don't think that's necessarily a compliment. So, yeah, it's clemency crossed with foxtrot crossed with the wild pear tree. And for me, that's just not a particularly good or satisfying mix. This film just didn't work on me particularly well. I think there is some good stuff here, but it didn't wow me the way I hoped a golden bear winning film would wow me so yeah uh, i don't really think this is worth it but equally it's not bad so for me it's a dispassionate fairly low meh for there is no evil archive finish Listening back to that all these months later, I find it kind of ironic that I talked in that that I would have to put myself through watching another film by Radu Jude 
when that was Bad Luck Banging Your Loony Porn, which I saw a couple of weeks ago and absolutely loved. And it's a sign of how weird distribution can get here in the UK. That's the 2021 Golden Bear at Berlin. Came out a couple of weeks before the 2020 Golden Bear at Berlin in UK cinemas. And as I said in that review of There Is No Evil, I wasn't the hugest fan of the film. And I do wonder why the film did win the 2020 Golden Bear at Berlin. I think that festival in particular has a history of giving awards to dissident Iranian filmmakers, like Jafar Panahi for Taxi Tehran, which was, what, 2014, I think it was? So yeah, maybe that had something to do with the reason why there is no evil one, the Golden Bear, but I wasn't massively impressed with it, but... It was a Golden Bear winner. I had access to it. I had nothing best to watch, so I watched There Is No Evil. And if there's something in that which you might appreciate, maybe you should as well. But for me, it only ended up being a meh. The second film out cinematically this week, which I already had a review recorded for, is the Norwegian film Hope, which I saw through extra-legal means earlier in the year because it was on the 15-film long list for International Feature Oscar at the ceremony just gone. So I did end up watching it since I found it on pirated sites. So here is my review of the Norwegian film Hope. Archive start. So it is the middle of April, only a short time before the actual Oscar ceremony, and I have just watched another film through extra-legal means, which was on the lists of Oscar contenders. Indeed, this was the final film I needed to tick off the list, so I have now completed the entire 15-film shortlist for International Feature Oscar which is something I'm not sure I've ever done before the Oscar ceremony took place, even though this year there were 15 films rather than the more usual 10. I guess this is one of the silver linings of everything being put online, is that it's a lot easier to pirate stuff now, which I am uncomfortable about, but time being a factor, it's just something you're going to have to deal with. So, yes. I have watched the Norwegian film Hope, which is directed by Maria Surdal, is her second full-length feature, and is basically inspired by her own life. Indeed, the first thing we see come up is a title card saying, This is my story as I remember it. And it tells the story of a woman played in the film by Andrea Brian Hovig, who is a choreographer and married to a theatre director, Stellan Skarsgård, and together they have six children, three from Stellan Skarsgård's first marriage and three together. So a large, mostly happy family even though both parents are much more preoccupied with their artistic endeavours than with actually making the relationship work. A couple of days before 
Christmas, the day before Christmas Eve, Andrea Brenhovig goes to the doctor because she's been having trouble with her eyesight. And rather concerned, the doctor says, I think you need to go for an MRI. And the worst fears are confirmed. A year ago, Andrea Brenhovig recovered from lung cancer, but now it's back and Maria Brenhovig has a brain tumour. But because it's a couple of days before Christmas and everybody's away from the holidays, nothing can be done about this, nothing can be really decided about this until after the holidays. So, Andrea Brenhovig and Stellan Skarsgård and their six kids and various family and friends have to deal with this potentially terminal diagnosis and work out how to cope with it, what to do about it. And this is inspired by director Maria Serdal's real life. She does have six kids, three of whom are her stepchildren by her husband, the Danish director Hans Petter Moland, who is a very well-respected director. He directed In Order of Disappearance, which was very good. He also directed the American remake, Cold Pursuit, which wasn't so good. And he also directed the Oscar submission from two years ago from Norway, Caught Stealing Horses. So rather delightfully, Norway submitted films in consecutive years that were directed by a husband and wife. And it was the wife who actually got on the 15-film long list. Yes, Hans Petter Moland is the partner, or now husband, of Maria Serdal. And they do have this large family. And I, I find it rather interesting that Hans Petter Moland is older than Maria Serdal by about 10 years, but it's not the 22 years older that Stellan Skarsgård is to Andrea Brenhovig, but anyway, it's inspired by Maria Sodal's own life and examines this potentially devastating diagnosis in the period leading up to Christmas and New Year's and this potentially life-saving or potentially risky life-ending surgery that she desperately needs on this brain tumour. And yeah, it's pretty good stuff for what it is. I mean, this is the type of disease of the week movie that often shows up on places like the Hallmark Channel. It has many of those similar beats. It's just been executed really, really well by a talented filmmaker with a very talented cast. Not only the two leads, but also the kids. I think particular praise needs to go to the 16-year-old daughter of this couple, played by Ellie Muller Osborne, who is a typical 16-year-old girl, you know, testing the bounds of her authority, trying to get away with as much as she possibly can, but bright enough to realise that, hang on a minute, something's wrong with Mark. She is very, very determined that I don't smoke, you know, too determined that I don't smoke, 
she's pretty lax about me coming home past my curfew. Something is definitely up. And there's also a precocious 10-year-old boy in the house who also quickly realises, hang on a minute, something's not quite right here. So making the decision to try and keep this secret for the week or so over the Christmas holidays before they could have this surgery, there's a little bit there, you know, a little bit of family drama. Uh, how do you cope with this? How do you deal with it? And yeah, it, it's all well executed. The problem is that because of this title card and because of the publicity, essentially saying that this is Maria Serdal's own story, that has its pros and cons. On the one hand, it has the definitive ring of authenticity. This feels like lived experience. This feels like a personal exploration of this kind of diagnosis and the short time period between that diagnosis and between the surgery over a time which is supposed to be happy. It feels true. It feels real. But because we know that Maria Sodal lived through it, we kind of know where it's going. We kind of know where the end is. And the fact that Andrea Brain Hovig always, always takes the most pessimistic view of her diagnosis, no matter what the doctor says, no matter what her partner Stellan Skarsgård says, she is going to die. And what is going to happen to the kids? How are they going to survive? Are they going to be okay? Is my partner Stellan Skarsgård going to be okay? Is he going to find somebody else? I mean, I have my suspicions that he's cheated on me in the past. How do I feel about that? I mean, it's the most pessimistic, the most bleak view of the future that Andrea Brain Hovig has. But because of the way the film is structured, we know she's going to survive. So it kind of feels a little bit ridiculous. And yeah, it, it's an issue. Like I said, it does have its pros and cons. Uh, and it, it's just something you're going to have to deal with. I think telling the story as if the protagonist is going to die has a power in and of itself. And dealing with grief, dealing with imminent death, dealing with a terminal illness, there is stuff to explore there. And also exploring this relationship between Andrew Brainhovig and Stella Skarsgård which is a really fascinating and really complex relationship to the extent that I'm really, really not sure if this is a healthy enough relationship that I want it to survive. Is there too much stuff going on in the background? Is there a case to be made that these people shouldn't be together? At various points, both of them say, well, I may as well just leave then. And you kind of believe it. I mean, yes, it's a very traumatic, very heightened experience, you know, this potentially terminal illness happening. But with or without that, you kind of get the impression that this is a very tense relationship. And for both parties involved, their work is the most important thing, not necessarily 
each other. I think for both of them, it goes work, then kids, then each other. I mean, that's their priorities. And this kind of tense, fractious relationship, having this extra pressure put on top of it, it's kind of interesting to explore. And yeah, there's there's interesting angles taken. And I'm honestly not sure, even by the end of the film, I'm not sure how healthy this relationship is. But yeah, I mean, that's a, an interesting and, and another factor which makes it feel, you know, quote unquote, real, makes it feel authentic, is just how complex this is. I mean, at one point, Stellan Skarsgård has a line of dialogue, life isn't perfect. And boy, howdy, is he right in this particular case? It, it's a really interesting angle to take. And, and yeah, it, it's a fascinating little film. I honestly have absolutely no idea how it made it to the final 15 film long list for International Feature Oscar. I don't see it as that good. I don't see it as transcending the narrow confines it has set for itself as this kind of disease of the week movie with an excellent filmmaker and an excellent cast. It doesn't transcend that. But for what it is, for what it is trying to be, I do think that hope is really good. So, yeah, uh, at time of recording, I do not know if this is going to get any form of legal UK distribution. It's certainly not been publicised, and it does feel like the kind of international feature which might not end up having any form of UK distribution. But whether or not hope ever does come out in the UK, I think it's a solid, unspectacular, well-acted meh. And that's the best I can say about hope. Archive finish. It does surprise me that that film Hope did end up getting on the 15-film long list for International Feature Oscar this year. Granted, it was a weird year with things being delayed and overlooked because of the COVID pandemic. But even so, there was still a long list of films which I personally think deserved to get attention from the Oscars more than Hope did. I mean, just looking through last year's list, I personally would have taken the Hungarian film preparations to be together for an unknown period of time, the Spanish film The Endless Trench, the Polish film Never Gonna Snow Again, the Georgian film Beginning, or the Finnish film Tova over Hope. I think all five of those films would have been a better option to get an Oscar nomination or get on the Oscar shortlist than Hope, which ultimately, well acted and well produced though it is, is basically a Disease of the Week movie. And the fact that the opening credit says she's going to be okay at the end, I think undercuts any power, any impact that the film might have had. So yeah, it's perfectly competent. If you're in the mood for something a little bit weepy, a little bit romantic, then yes, there's worse stuff out there. But I think there's also better stuff out there. So for me, the Norwegian film Hope is only a meh. Home movies. A Christmas number one. 
is one of a slew of mildly cheesy Christmas romantic comedies which have been released recently. This one is available on Sky Cinema. Last Sunday, I needed to kill some time before the start of the football game I wanted to watch. A disappointing defeat of Everton by Crystal Palace. So, on my Skybox was downloaded this film, A Christmas Number One. Which is directed by Chris Cottam, who started out as a highly successful director of music videos and commercials alongside the legendary photographer Rankin. And when that partnership split up, Chris Cottam has gone on to do lots of stuff on television, including directing all those documentaries that Rich Hall does for BBC4, which are rather good, and it might explain why Rich Hall makes a a small cameo at the end of this film. But this is a mildly cheesy Christmas romantic comedy starring Frida Pinto. As a music executive whose career has hit the skids in New York when the pop singer she is the manager for has basically just written an entire album about their breakup. A breakup which he caused when he slept with Frida Pinto's best friend. Unable to maintain her dignity in New York, she is sent off somewhat against her will, back to London, where she works for a management company run by the unrecognisable Alfie Bow, who apparently put a hiatus on his Las Vegas residency specifically in order to go back to London and shoot this film. But yeah, Alfie Bow is completely unrecognisable in this film as a, a boorish, loudmouth runner of this management company who is somewhat on the skids because the boy band he is the manager for, their last album did not do well because the band insisted on writing their own songs, and now they need desperately to reconnect with the public, and the best way to do that is get a Christmas number one. So the search is on for a song which this boy band, Five Together, can record. Step in a song written by Ewan Rian, who is the bass player in a death metal band. And wouldn't you know it, the first night that Frida Pinto was in London, she was reluctantly coerced into going to a battle of the bands, where Ewan Rian hit her in the face with his bass guitar. But now he's written this song for his very sick, possibly dying niece played by Helena Zengel, who has shot up like a weed since the last time I saw her in System Crusher and News of the World, but she is the 13-year-old niece of Ewan Rian, with an English mother and a German mother, which explains the thick German accent that Helena Zengel still has. But Ewan Rian has written this Christmas song for his niece, And Frida Pinto wants it, so she manipulates everybody around her in order to get this song available to be recorded by this boy band. But the condition is that Ewan Rian produces this song for the boy band. So Frida Pinto and Ewan Rian, who of course hate each other, 
spend a lot of time together with the tacit encouragement of the sick niece who wants her uncle happy and romantic sparks start flying over Christmas. In many, many ways, A Christmas Number One is exactly the cheesy Christmas romantic comedy you anticipate. There is nothing fresh here. There is nothing original here. It is one of those films that just ticks off the formula. All the things you anticipate being in a Christmas romantic comedy, a bittersweet Christmas romantic comedy, are here. The meet-cute where Frida Pinto instantly hates Ewan Rian because he's smashed her in the face with a bass guitar. Completely coincidentally, of course, this is the guy whose song she wants a couple of weeks later. There's you know corporate greed getting in the way and commercialism and Ewan Rian hating the direction that his song has been going in despite his best efforts, despite the fact he is technically the producer of this song, he's not getting his own way and it's turning into this polished pop number, which is entirely opposite of what he actually intended. But Frida Pinto needs a hit or she'll be fired. And Alfie Bow, the runner of this management company, is desperate for a hit because he's about to go out of business. So, of course, corporate greed gets in the way and even though it's been promised that all the profits are going to go to charity, of course, Frida Pinto and Alvivo aren't going to let a charity get hold on all that sweet, sweet cash. So we end up with a situation where Ewan Rian records the song with his own heavy metal band in direct competition with the boy band. So who is going to be Christmas number one? Who's going to get all that cash? I mean, in the modern era, when so much stuff is done on streaming, the actual finance, the actual money that you can get from a Christmas number one versus a Christmas number two, how much difference is there actually there? So what's the point of this big conflict? But of course, we need to have a conflict. Of course, we need to have misunderstandings between Frida Pinto and Ewan Rian. So even though they're clearly into each other and to give this film credit, they do sleep with each other after the first date. I mean, it's actually one of the nicest, well, not, not nicest is the wrong word, but it's a really cool moment where they wake up in bed next to each other and the way that plays out is, is brilliant. So I do like the fact that they're not coy about it. It's not a will they, won't they. It's a they have, and then the issues start. And of course, there are issues because there needs to be conflicts. There needs to be misunderstandings. Oh, I thought you were sleeping with that guy. Oh, I thought you were sleeping with that girl. And yeah, it's the formula. It's exactly the formula you expect. To the extent that even though Ewan Rian is supposedly in this death metal band, the other three members of the band are all in leather and chains and the drummer wears a, a devil mask on the stage. Ewan Rian's up there in a polo shirt and jeans. So even though he's in this death metal band, he's the nice one. It's just, really, did you you need to go that far? Do you need to make it so specific? Look, he's he's not dangerous at all. And I mean, the rest of the band aren't dangerous either. But you need to have that connection. And you need to believe that Ewan Rian would write this really sweet song for his niece. 
Now, the song itself was actually written by Guy Chambers, the guy who wrote Angels, amongst other things. He's had a long collaborative career with, alongside Robbie Williams and Kylie Minogue and people like that. So the songs are mostly written by Guy Chambers, although apparently Ewan Rian, who is a bit of a musician himself, did have a hand in it, which possibly might explain why the main song that ends up being produced, a song called Christmas Morning, you know, is it going to be Christmas number one for the boy band or is it going to be the, the charity version by the death metal band? It's not actually that good. I mean, in a, a film about music like this, it is very dependent on the quality of the song. And I do think the song is good, but I don't think it's good enough to be a shoo-in for the Christmas number one. Particularly when this charity version, I mean, they specifically say the charity version is only produced 10 days before Christmas. So how is that going to be Christmas number one anyway? But we need a conflict. So then we have to have this battle of the bands attitude going on because that's part of the formula. And it also should be said that if you actually listen to the lyrics of this song Christmas Morning that Ewan Rian has supposedly written for his dying niece, Helena Zangle. It's a little bit too romantic for a man to write about his 13-year-old niece. Put in that context, it's actually rather creepy, and that isn't addressed at all. And maybe it should have been? I mean, it's the formula. It, I mean, that, that's what this is. It is the formula and nothing more. I mean, maybe it's a little bit subversive that Helena Zangle has two female parents, but uh, I think that is actually becoming somewhat more common, even in relatively mainstream stuff like this. But we need to tick off the boxes, including, you know, the bittersweet angle of having the, you know, the dying 13-year-old niece. And maybe that has something to do with the fact that the ending of this film, we need to have such a huge leap in time and such a huge leap in intention that the ending basically comes out of nowhere. I mean, here is you know, the bittersweet end, and no, we need a happy end, so let's just tack on this bit at the end, because everybody needs to end up together, everybody needs to be happy, because that's the formula, and that's what this is. I mean, it's not bad. I mean, the song isn't terrible. I don't think it's particularly good, but it's not terrible. The acting is decent enough. Helena Zengel is awesome. I, I love her. It's, it's just remarkable how quickly a girl that age can grow up. I mean, I think she was, what, 10 or 11 when she was in System Crasher? She must be about 13 now. And yeah, two years has made a lot of difference in how tall she is, if nothing else. But she's always been a great actress. I actually kind of believe the chemistry between you and Rian and Frida Pinto. But it's just a very formulaic movie. And on some level, that's what you want, that's what you need from this kind of film, but there really is nothing else here. So on its own terms, it functions, it's fine. It's available on Sky Cinema, and for me, a Christmas number one is a relatively low, relatively dispassionate meh. Coming attractions. The big cinematic release this week is yet another Marvel Cinematic Universe film. 
Spider-Man No Way Home. I'm getting a little tired with the naming conventions of MCU films, and having Far From Home followed by No Way Home makes it unnecessarily confusing. But anyway, in this latest film in the MCU, the identity of Peter Parker has been revealed by the conspiracy blogger J. Jonah Jameson played by J.K. Simmons, who confusingly played J. Jonah Jameson in the Tobey Maguire films. But anyway, his identity has been revealed, and in order to protect his identity, young Peter Parker goes to Doctor Strange in order to change the world so everybody forgets that he's Spider-Man. But things go wrong, and then alternative realities start crashing into each other. So people like... Alfred Molina playing Dr. Octopus show up in this version of the Spider-Man story. So yeah, lots of alternative versions of Spider-Man, lots of alternative film adaptations of Spider-Man could become interesting and relevant in varying ways, particularly since we've already recently had Venom Let There Be Carnage it possibly might end up connecting to the Morbius film that Jared Leto has done. I mean, that's such a weird comic book to adapt, Morbius, but anyway, they've done it. So, yeah, lots of interesting stuff going on in multiverses in Spider-Man, although it would have to go a long way to be better than Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, the animated film from a few years back, but anyway... It is out at the cinemas this week, and I will be checking it out. With the double issues that a gigantic blockbuster like Spider-Man No Way Home is out, and we're only a few days before Christmas, there's very little else out being released at the cinema, and what is being released is rather small fry in comparison. But there are a couple of films I am very interested in. We have a film called Swan Song, which is getting a limited cinematic release before eventually ending up on Apple Plus TV, in which Mahershala Ali plays a terminally ill man who agrees to an experimental procedure where a clone of him will take his place in his life so his family doesn't have to go through the grief of him dying. But then moral and ethical considerations come up. And yeah, that sounds like it might be very interesting. There's also a Belgian film getting a limited release as well called Lola and the Sea. In which a trans teenage girl who is just about to have her final transitional surgery is given the devastating news that her mother has died. So she goes back to her long estranged father who never understood or appreciated his son transitioning. But they end up going on a road trip together in order to scatter their mother slash wife's ashes in her hometown on the Belgian coast. So it's a road trip with a father who does not appreciate or respond well to his trans daughter. 
in a car together, which could be kind of interesting. So I do want to check out Lola and the Sea, which is, of course, being distributed by Peccadillo Pictures. Listed as coming out next week is a film I've long been fascinated by. It made a lot of waves at the Sundance Film Festival. might even have been the 2020 Sundance Film Festival. I've certainly been hearing about it for a long time. It's called Nine Days, and it's directed by the Japanese-Brazilian director Edson Oda, and has a really interesting and metaphysical premise. In a remote wilderness, a man, Winston Duke, looks at POV cameras of all the people on Earth, and when somebody dies, there is a position open for a new soul to inhabit their place on the world. And it is Winston Duke's duty to decide which souls are worthy of being born. So he goes through all the interviews, tries to figure out who deserves to be born, but his comfortable existence is thrown into chaos by a free-spirited soul, played by Zazie Beetz, and suddenly he starts questioning everything. So Yeah, a very philosophical, very metaphysical film, which does sound really, really interesting. And I do want to check out Nine Days. However, I can't find it listed on any of the cinemas that I can get access to. So it's entirely possible that I might have to wait for that to come out on streaming. But if I do manage to find a cinema that I can get to that is playing Nine Days, I will be checking that out. This week's cheesy Christmas movie on Sky Cinema is called Last Train to Christmas, in which Michael Sheen plays a man who is taking a train journey home just before Christmas, but when he travels back and forth between the carriages on this train, he goes backward and forward in time. So he gets to see all the decisions he made, all the mistakes he made, and has a chance to change it, or that seems to be the pattern of what's going on. We start, it seems, in the 1980s, and he travels forward into the 2000s, where he's a wreck of a man, and he travels back into the 1950s, where he's trying to connect with his brother, It seems very much about family relationships, but it's a very interesting premise going backward and forward in time as you go backward and forward up the train carriages of a particular train. And I do like Michael Sheen. So, yeah, I do think Last Train to Christmas sounds rather interesting, and I do want to check that out. And released onto regular streaming platforms, there's another film called Portal Runner, which looks rather interesting. A teenage boy realises he can travel through dimensions into alternative realities when he looks through mirrors. But something or someone is pursuing him, so he has to team up with a sister, which in his reality doesn't exist, but he has to team up with his alternative reality sister in order to escape this evil pursuer. And that sounds really, really cool. So. I do want to check out Portal Runner, and that has been added to the list. On Netflix, there's a couple of things, neither of which are particularly appealing to me for differing reasons. 
On one hand, there is the documentary 137 Shots, which is a potentially harrowing documentary following a real-life case of a police shooting in Cleveland where a couple were unnecessarily killed by a horde of policemen who chased them down through the streets of Cleveland and eventually shot them 137 times for no reason. So that's going to be fun. And not appealing in a very different way is the Italian film The Hand of God. Directed by Paolo Sorrentino, it's a film that Netflix is clearly pushing very much the same way it pushed Alfonso Cuaron's Roma. It's an autobiographical tale from Paolo Sorrentino about growing up in Naples during the 1980s and being enamoured of Diego Maradona, as every teenager in Naples was at that period. But I'm just not a fan of Paolo Sorrentino. I did not like The Great Beauty. I don't think it deserved to win the Foreign Language Oscar when it did. I mean, it beat The Broken Circle Breakdown, which is a brilliant, if harrowing, film. So yeah, I don't like Paolo Sorrentino, and I don't particularly want to watch The Hand of God. But there's a very real possibility that The Hand of God is going to get nominated for an Oscar, if not win the Oscar for International Feature. Paolo Sorrentino is a recognisable name, and that sure as hell helps when you're trying to get an International Feature Oscar. It might not be a big enough name to beat Asghar Hardy and Pedro Almodovar, both of whom have films out in the eligible list. But we're going to have to see. I mean, it turns out that the shortlist or the long list of international feature contenders is going to be released on the 21st of December, not the 15th as I first thought it was. I mean, whether I misread it or whether the sites I was using were misinformed, I don't know. But there's every chance that The Hand of God will be one of the 15 film long lists, in which case I will probably end up watching it even though I am not a fan of Paolo Sorrentino. But it's out there, so I better announce the fact that I might be watching it. My highest priorities for the stuff which is already out. On streaming platforms, I'm very curious about the American indie Wild Indian, about a Native American man haunted by his past. The Last Days of Capitalism, a two-handed film about relationships, both romantic and financial. A couple of very low-budget American indies, The Way You Look Tonight, about a series of dates which might possibly be the same person in different guises, and What She Said, about a rape survivor who is trying to be persuaded by her friends to actually pursue the case. And there's also Daniel Brawl's directorial debut in the German film Next Door about a German neighbourhood and gentrification. On Netflix, my highest priorities are the Oscar contender The Power of the Dog, another film adaptation of a musical Tick, Tick, Boom, the cheesy Christmas romance A Castle for Christmas, 
the spooky movie, which I still haven't got to from Halloween, Night Teeth, and the German hunting humans for sport film, Prey. And I've still not finished my July foreplay, and I'm rapidly getting to the stage where I need to start thinking about my end of the year shows. So I've got a hell of a lot of stuff to get through. But uh, yeah, that's the way things go. So that's all I have for this episode. And all that remains for me to say is this has been Yay, Nay, or Ma presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod. And I'll see you next time where I shine a light on cinema, both obvious and obscure.